0: If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. This is the last Sunday we'll be in 1 John. I'm so excited. This is such fulfillment to be able to preach through a whole book. It's a very short book, but think about it. We've preached through a whole book of the Bible. It's exciting. So uh, yeah, let's, uh, I'll read it uh, starting in verse 18, and we'll go down to verse 21. 1 John chapter 5 starting in verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps him, keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I am reminded of your faithfulness. As we finish up this book, you are the, as we just sang, you are the healer, You are the very fountainhead, Lord Jesus, from which we drink. And as we see these verses today, and as we we ponder them, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us. Alive in our hearts to you. Do in us, God, what we can't do in ourselves. We love you, Lord. Lord. We thank you. We ask that you would do this for your name. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So the book of John, as we've seen, has been one ginormous test to really see if we're in the faith. Now, we've seen several tests in this book. We've seen the moral test, which exudes if our life has righteousness in it. We've seen the social test of love for one another. and We've seen the truth test to see if we believe the right things. This book has been deeply challenging, but it has been deeply joy-filled to know at the end of it that you're truly a child of God. And John loves his little children. Now, I don't know how many of you guys growing up, when I, when I was growing up, I remember my dad, he would always, uh, every time we would go somewhere, we'd go to the store, we'd go, go out to the farm, whatever we would do. He would always leave me with just certain words. He would say, be careful. That's what he would say every single time. We, would, we could be going, I could be going on the other side of the world. The last words he would tell me just before I'd close the door is, Daniel, be, be careful. Be careful. And I think him, like a good dad would do, warns us. The last thing he says is be careful. And now I'm not saying John's saying be careful here, but John wants our best. So he ends his letter with this little children keep yourselves from idols now now that's a little different than be careful but it's similar he wants us to remain in Christ he wants us to continue in the faith and he warns us little children keep yourselves from idols so if you're taking notes i want you to see two things i want you to see this in a world of darkness and deception we must guard ourselves against idols. In a world of darkness and deception, we must guard ourselves against idols. And then secondly, our only hope for success is found in God's promises. Second piece is, our only hope for success is found in God's promises. Look down at at verse 18. Now we did verse 18 last time, but I want us to cover it again because it's really important. He says, and we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, has been born, he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So we saw the last time, which has been over a month ago, so I'll just remind you, the assurance of spiritual protection, the assurance of spiritual protection. And we made the quippy line, can't touch this, right from MC Hammer, can't touch this, spiritual protection. Now, we have talked about this a little bit, but the Christian is one who's first been born from above and cannot be harmed from the evil one. The Christian is unharmed from the evil one because he has been born from above. So this is an important piece to know. We covered it last time, but I just want it to be in front of you today. The assurance of spiritual protection. Can't touch this. No, 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 no. There it is. <laughs> can't. When I hear that, I can't not think the M.Z. Hammers on So spiritual protection is the first one, assurance of spiritual protection. (laughs) So let's look at verse 19. So That's verse 18. Look at verse 19. And we covered this last time, but there's more to be depth, to be plumbed here. And I want you to see it. And we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, there's a lot in this statement. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if you're taking notes, that that first section, we could call it um, the assurance. And it's really in the family. What does it mean to be in the family? The assurance, there's two pieces in this. We see the assurance and then a declaration. I want to talk about the assurance first. Passing the test. What does it mean that we pass the test? How do we really know? I hear someone asking, how do you really know that you're from God? I love this quote from Jim Boyce. He says this. He says, in this case, the certainty that we are children of God comes from the fact that the tests of righteousness, like we've seen, love and sound doctrine have been applied and the results discovered are to be positive. So this is like he's, he's finally bringing it together and he's saying all these tests, all these things you've seen, they should come together and they should show you one thing and that you're from God. Now, if you failed those tests, this assurance isn't for you. And that's that's okay. I mean, we're not, this isn't to shame you. But he wants you to see that if you have passed the tests, this is true of you. And we know that we are from God. And if this is not true of you, this is what it says. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When a person passes the moral test, walking in righteousness, the social test, loving the brothers, and the doctrine test, believing the right things, then people can know we belong to God. And that's an amazing reality. But here's the declaration, though. The declaration is the peace that is for those who don't belong to God. And it's this, in his grasp. That his is lowercase, notice. It's lowercase on purpose because it's in Satan's grasp. Listen to the second part of the verse. We know that we're from God. That's those who've passed the test. But the second part is really important. And the whole world... Lies in the power of the evil one. We, more than anyone, on the anniversary of September 11th, can look around and say, people wonder, why would this happen? Why? Why does this happen? Verse 19 shows us, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The second aspect of this verse is the declaration that the world lies in the power of Satan. The evil one, which we've said is Satan or the Antichrist, has his grip on the entirety of this world. Now, what we don't want him to see, here's what we shouldn't see. When it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we shouldn't think, oh, well, the world's lying there and it's struggling really hard and there's this real intense battle. That's actually not the picture of the scriptures. He says "And the whole world lies, that word lies, it literally means it's just laying there. There's no struggle. There is no struggle. There is no pushing against. They are unconsciously asleep in the embrace of the evil one. Now, this is very humbling. It should be very humbling because this was once us. If you're a Christian here today, you're either in one of two camps. You're either in one of two camps here today. You're either one who used to be in the embrace of the evil one or one who still is. Now listen to a couple other places where we see that Satan is the one, the, the one who's the power, the, the, one, the power of the evil one. Listen to him, uh, listen to what he says to Jesus in, verse, in Luke chapter 4. This is when he's tempting Jesus. He says this, And the devil took him, that's Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. So there it is again. We see a very clear picture that Satan is the one who has dominion over all of the creation. And he's offering to Jesus in this moment, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of it. You can have all the glory of all of it. And we know what Jesus says. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God. That's it. And he quotes scripture back to Satan and tells him to flee. So, but what we need to see, and then he, I'll give you another place where we see a similar picture of what Satan's job is described as. Galatians 1, 4, he says, who gave himself, that's the Lord Jesus, for our sins to present, to to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God. So there it is. He's delivered us from the present evil age. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, that is those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. So let me ask you a question. How does Satan go about doing this? Have you ever wondered that? I would put it like this. People, that is those who are in the embrace, who lie in the grips of the evil one, are enslaved to what they want. They are enslaved to their own desires. They're enslaved to their own passions, which are contrary to Christ. Simply put, those who lie in the grasps of the evil one are habitual idolaters. They are are habitual, that means habit-formed idolaters that are so hardened to everything else, to, to the things of God, that they lie silently in his grasps. The blinding of this world is the fact that they're unable to see the Lord Jesus for who he is. And now the secular lie, we talked about it a little bit last week, or the last time I talked. The secular lie says that we are neutral. And we have the ability to, to choose and to, to, to kind of figure out what's going on. We don't live in a neutral world. We live in a world that is bent in the direction of Satan ruling over it. Every human institution is driven by idolaters that are apart from Christ. Every person who's not a believer is enslaved to their passions. Now this text, this verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It does two things to us. It should The believer is deeply comforted by the knowledge that they belong to God. This verse allows the Christian to be grateful for the protection that God gives him. And yet simultaneously guards us from seeing, looking out and thinking, they have it right. It guards us from looking out and seeing the world and being like, I think they're happier than we are. I think we're happier. You know how we know that's not true? Because this text says that they are lying in the grasp of the evil one. It it guards us from always agreeing with others. Because if the world is under the grips of the evil one, then we must have a posture of wisdom and shrewdness in our thinking. So those are the two applications from that verse. Look look down at verse 20, though. He goes on. And he says, "We We know that the Son of God has come, And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So here's the last assurance. Assurance of knowledge of God. Assurance of knowledge of God. And underneath it's just know him. Just to know him. I love this quote from Spurgeon. Anytime you ever need a good quote, something quote-worthy, just go to Spurgeon. Spurgeon's just sitting there waiting, gun-loaded with a great quote. Now, this is it. This is what he says. He says, know thyself, says the heathen philosopher. That is, but, but that knowledge only leads a man to hell. Know Christ, says the Christian philosopher. Know him, and then you shall know yourself fully. This shall certainly lead you to heaven for the knowledge of Christ Jesus is saving knowledge. The last assurance in this book is the knowledge that the Son of God has given us understanding. And I want you to notice something. Look at verse 20 again. And he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Now I want you, I want to be very clear here. The 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 knowledge that has been given to us, his first and foremost, what we have is something that has been first and foremost given to us. Listen to Luke, Luke 24. We, ha- we had it read this morning. But, and it's the same kind of revealing, the knowledge that has been given to us, in the same way that the Lord Jesus did to them on the road to Emmaus. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The act of Jesus opening their minds to the scripture is the prerequisite to knowing the Lord. And this matters for us. If if, if it happens that we just kind of have come to know Jesus on our own because we're smart enough or we're logical enough, the gospel's really not good news. If it's just up for grabs, we can look at our neighbor and be like, you need to be smart like me. It's not good news. The gospel's first and foremost something that has been revealed to us. The understandings and the insights are not something we produce. We are not the ones who are smart enough, who are logical enough to come to Christ. No. Look what the text says in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that means that all those who don't have this understanding, it's because Christ has not revealed it to them yet. So it should produce in us a deep, deep, deep humility. We have received nothing. There is nothing that we have received that has not been given to us. And to know the Lord is to know the one who is the truth. So it's knowing and loving, this next sub-point. Knowing and loving the Son. Listen to what he says in verse 20, the end of verse 20. I'll just read all the 20. So, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. So it's knowing and loving the son, but then he says something that should just, if you're an Old Testament reader, should just blow your hair back. He says he is the true God and eternal life. John's assertion is that the Lord Jesus is the one true God and eternal life. The word true there is not as opposed to falsehood, he's saying that it's the, he's the genuine one, the true, the true God, the genuine God and the eternal life. And if you're an Old Testament reader, the only person, the only one in the Old Testament who's referred to as the true God and the eternal life is Yahweh. Yahweh, the one who's revealed himself from glory. And he says, this is the Lord Jesus. That the Lord Jesus took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died a death that we deserved and then was raised for our justification. This Jesus is the true God in eternal life." He says, and again in John 17:3, we've seen this verse so many times in the book of First John, John 17:3, "And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you 've sent, do you see it there 's salvation. If you want to know God today, know the Lord Jesus. So to know and love the Lord Jesus is to know and love the only true God. to know and love Christ is to know and love our Creator and Lord. When we know and love the Lord Jesus, we get both the Father and the Son and the Spirit and now this brings us to our our final fatherly warning from the book of 1 John it's the final assurance but I want to leave you with this final warning the final warning is this, it's to keep away from idols he says in verse 21, little children keep yourselves from idols so the warning is to keep away from idols now again, all throughout the Old Testament God warned the people from committing idolatry now, idolatry is not just this like, super spiritual word. I, an idol is anything that we give ultimate allegiance to. And idolatry, the act of giving our allegiance to something lesser, was is, Israel's pet sin. They were always warned against it, and yet it was the thing that always led them astray. Listen to Isaiah. If you have never read Isaiah chapter 44, I really encourage you to do so. If you ever want to know about idolatry, there's a whole chapter in the entire Bible that just talks about the vanity of idolatry. I'm just going to, to listen to a little bit of it. Isaiah 44:9. 9, he says this. He says, All who fashion idols, that is, an idol, again, is something that, that we give a supreme allegiance to. He says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they, are put, that they may be put to shame. The person who trusts in an idol, the scriptures say, is utterly foolish. Now John Calvin, he says this about idols, within the heart of the believer even. He says this, he says, the heart is an idol factory. The heart is an idol factory. And Calvin's point is that the human heart continually crafts idols. The text goes on to say, and I'll just let you listen to a little bit more of it, Isaiah 44. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He, makes, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And I could just go on and on and on. And his point is that, the, that man, he goes and he crafts little, little idols, or even big idols, even if you will. Maybe it's the size of his house. But he says, I'm hungry. And then he goes to the thing that he made and asks the thing to feed him. <laughs> like if you say it out loud, it just sounds really dumb. But this is what idolatry is. He makes it. He crafts. There's the blacksmith. He he rolls it over the fire. He makes the idol. And then he goes to it and he says, I need help. It's like, you just made the thing. Now, most of us are not at home crafting idols, typically. That is not what we see. But Paul Tripp, he says it like this. And I think this is so compelling. He says that whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over the person's life and behavior. Our idols in our day and age are not some big altar that we call bail. <laughs> They're little devices we carry in our pockets that we call iPhone. They're things that we call people pleasing. There are things that we, and we're going to look at a few of them. That's what I want us to do to end this, end this chapter, is look at some of the idols that are te- we are tempted to fall into. And the warning is very simple. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So in the previous verse, we need to remember, look in verse, 19, verse 20 real quick. It says that Jesus, in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the only, he is the true God in the eternal life. And what John is doing is he's doing something that would make an Old Testament reader cringe or rejoice. And it would cringe because the only person who ultimate worship was given to in the Old Testament was Yahweh. But in the New Testament, what he's saying is, our ultimate allegiance is given to the Lord Jesus. So an idol is anything that surplaces or takes away our love for Christ. So guarding oneself from the opponent's teaching would amount to anything that removes Jesus from his primary position as Lord of all. I want you to listen to another quote from a lady named Rebecca Pippert. She says this. She says, whatever, or what does it mean then to allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives? What does it mean that anything is the Lord of our life? Just this. Whatever controls us is Lord. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. If Jesus is our Lord, then he is the one who controls. He has the ultimate power. Oh, that quote's probably hard to see. If you want to see it, if you want it at some point, I can send it to you. But There's a really very real sense And I want to end our time by looking at four different responses. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, Daniel, I don't struggle with idolatry. I'm never going to walk away from the Lord Jesus. That's not what John's urging us here. He's urging us to keep ourselves from idols. So I want to give us a path to guard ourselves from idols. So there should be four R's. Here's the four R's of guarding ourselves from idols. The first R is recognize the idol. Recognize the idol. And understand the desire, the belief, and the motivation. So part of keeping yourself from idols is beginning by, by looking at it and seeing this is the thing that's controlling me. Here's the second R, and then we're going to apply all four of these. Second R is repent. The ascendingness or the, the, the rulingness of my desire. Then the third is refocus, and that's promises and provisions. Refocus, promises and provisions, and then finally replace, trust, and obey. Now this can be—I could—we could come at this from a hundred different angles, but these are the four that I'm giving you today. And these four elements will always be involved in guarding ourselves from idols. There's a guy named John Bettler, who who when he talks about idols, he, he, he describes them in idol clusters. Oftentimes our idols aren't just like weird things out here somewhere. They're, they're actually very clustered. And I want, to give us, I want to give us four of them. The first one is desire for approval. And brothers and sisters, if there is an idol that Daniel Sisler runs to, it's this one. I think I would argue that my generation and younger, if there's an idol that we run to, it's this one. It's desire for approval, which can be called fear of man. So, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And then what we're going to do is we're going to walk through those four R's with the, with the concept of fear of man. Fear of man does not sound like it should be an idol. Desire for approval does not sound like it should be something that we've crafted in our backyard that we give our ultimate allegiance to. But listen to what the scriptures say about fear of man, just in a couple places. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. The fear of man is like a snare. So here's the first one. Recognizing the idol. Here's how we recognize it. That fear of man lays a snare. It's like being captured by an animal. It's like a trap which will catch and ultimately destroy people. And the opposite, the opposite of fearing man or desiring approval is, look what he says trusts in the Lord. Because that one who trusts in the Lord, he is safe. Or listen to another place, Galatians 1.10. If there's a verse that I quote to myself on a daily basis, it's this one. For I am not seeking the approval of man. For am, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He doesn't say, oh, you can please man and please Christ. You can't. He says you will do one or the other. So there's the recognizing. Okay, we see it. All right, Daniel, I'm a people pleaser. I I want people's, I'm afraid of what other people think. So here's the second step, repent. Repent of the ascendingness of the desire. And all that means, the ascendingness, is to say that it, it elevates itself to the highest position in my life. The ascendingness of the desire is the fact that the desire is trying to take the place of Christ. If we are trying to please other people, if we're seeking their approval, we are trying to be liked and approved, and we will not be a servant of Christ. So then the, the third piece is to refocus. with promises and provisions. The promise and provision for us which is, this is amazing, it's even in this passage. (laughs) The promise and the provision for people pleasing is even in this passage. Look back to verse um, 19, actually verse 18 too. The promise and the provision for us is the assurance that we've just seen. The promise that we cannot be touched by the evil one. We do not have to fear others' opinions because others' opinions are not ultimate of us. Listen to what it says again in verse eight, 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. So even if other people disapprove of us, even if other people's opinions are of, of us are awful, that guy's a jerk. This person's terrible. You know what? At the end of the day, their opinion doesn't matter. You know whose opinion matters? God's opinion that God is the one who protects us and God was the one who guards us from the evil one. So we can then trust that, this fi- that final piece, replace, trust and obey. We can trust these promises and obey by believing that God's opinion of us is ultimate. So our only hope to be guarded against idols is found in the promises of God. Alright, let me give you another idol. I think it's helpful to do this. So desire for success. And I call this one the fear of losing control. So little children, keep yourselves from idols and the idol of success. Now I want to be clear about something. An idol, I would say almost 100% of the time, is not a bad thing. It is actually a very good thing. It's, It's not a bad thing to want other people to like you. It's not a bad thing to want success. We shouldn't, I've heard people say, well, like, Christians, they just want to be losers. Christians should not want to be losers, okay? That's, so it's good to want success. That's a good thing. But the problem with success and the problem with control and the problem with all these other things is when they become ultimate. When I begin to say, I need success, I have to have success, and success looks like this fill in the blank. It's the difference of saying, I want something and I need something. When you say, I want something, it's good to want something. It's good to want success. It's good to want, it's good to want even people to like you. <laughs> no one wants people to hate me. That's really weird if you want people to hate you. Like, but success is good. Want, wanting people to like you is good. But when it becomes a want, moves from a want to a, I need this. And I need this so much that I will change everything else to get it. I want to be clear. Christians are not meant to be losers. (laughs) When someone's desiring success, it's not a bad thing. So there's recognizing the idol. Understanding the desire, the belief, and the motive. You know how you know you desire success above everything else? Rather than seeing people as people, what you do is you see them as objects. For my success. So you think... And we've become so normalized by the American dream, it's like we're fish swimming in water. We don't even see it anymore. People are, so, people are objects to be used for whatever ends. And an idol seeks to make you believe that you're indispensable, maybe. The idol makes you think, well, no one could take care of this job apart from me. I'm the only one who can do it. So that's recognizing the idol. Okay, let's move to the second piece, repenting of the idol. The ascendingness of my desire. When something is your idol, you will try and use Jesus to help you get that thing. Let me say that one more time. When this one is your idol, you will be using Jesus to get you success. Success is a good thing. I just said it. But the problem is when success begins to control you. And almost nine times out of ten, the aim of success or the goal of success has been given to you by someone else. So then we refocus. Okay, we refocus on God's promises of of the redefinition of success. Listen to, and John's already given us this this definition in 1 John. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Success is no longer defined by the world's standards, but it's defined by Christ and his standards. And here they are. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, so there's, he's redefining the success, and then he goes and he says, let's replace it. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But here it is, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So for you who's like, success is my thing, that's, that's what I'm aiming for, success in your career, success in your parenting, listen to what he says. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It, it cuts the knees out from underneath the controlling of, idol of success. We replace the desire for success and the fear of control of loss with the reality that God has truly given us true success, and that is what we will be obedient to his world, word and his will. Our only hope to be guarded against idols is found in God's promises. Let me give you one more, one final one that I think is just very prevalent within our culture. It's desire for comfort. and a, a, a Desire for comfort or fear of lack. And let me speak to you as someone who also deals with desire for comfort to the point that it rules me. The fear of lack means that someone is dealing with comfort... They're saying, I believe someday that I won't have enough comfort. I need that comfort right now. I need that rest right now, immediately. When comfort becomes our source of joy and peace, we have elevated comfort to a place it ought not to be. So it's recognizing the idol. It's good for a man or a woman to be able to take a break and rest. Again, this 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 is just like an idol does. Comfort's a good thing. We shouldn't want what Daniel told me today. I should want uncomfortability. That's what I should want. No, that's not what I'm saying. Desire for comfort, though, is saying it's taking a good thing and it's making it a God thing. That's an idol. It's taking a good thing and it's making it a God thing. And when we begin to allow comfort to control us, we elevate it above Christ. So then we repent. So we've recognized the idol. We've recognized that comfort is what I love. Okay, well then, repent. (laughs) And when the desire for comfort begins to impinge, here's what the desire for comfort always impinges upon. Love for my neighbor. Always. Because it says, I just need some time to relax. Okay? So, you snap at your wife or you snap at whoever. Because I just need some time alone. I should deserve, I deserve this vacation. Do you know how hard I work? This is what it sounds like. When my desire for comfort and convenience begins to control me, it needs repented of. Listen to again, even first John gives us the, the promises to cling to. First John chapter three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will not be as we we will we will be, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know. That when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So there's the, there's the promise. It's we are children of God now. And we can trust and believe that one day the promise that's coming of comfort and peace will be so ultimate. Will be so amazing that Christ is our satisfaction. Even if we don't feel it in that moment that we've been adopted into his family, that we belong to God, that we no longer seek ultimate comfort and pleasure in lesser things. And then finally, we replace. We trust and obey. We replace by trusting and obeying what John has said here, that one day we will see Jesus for who he is, that then we will be guarded from these lesser comforts and set our hope fully on the Lord Jesus in that moment. Our only hope to be guarded against idols is found in the promises of God. I want to close with this. I once heard my professor say this, and I think it's very true. With a warning like this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We can leave here and feel very discouraged. But I want to encourage you with this the church could be best described. As a group of prior, prior idolaters that used to be idolaters, that come together, and every single week we go to therapy. And our therapy looks a little different than the rest of the world. We come together and we sing, and we open a book and we, we, we hear, we hear from God, and then we, then we listen, then we pray. And this, my friends, as we do this, as we do this, as we repent. God is glorified, and we, in a deeper way, over time, find our joy in him. This should not be something that, again, the the keeping yourself from idols, notice, it doesn't happen just once. This is not a one-time event that, okay, now you've been kept from idols. You're good. You're in the sanctuary of kept from idols. No, friends, this is something that continually happens. And as we see them, we repent and we turn. So if you think today, you're like, man, you know what, Daniel, you named uh, three, three things that are apparently ruling my life. I want to encourage you today. The Lord Jesus does not, he's not waiting, he's not looking down being like, well, you're, you're that loser. No, he's actually saying, come to me. Come to me, all who are weak and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is what's offered to us today. That's what's offered to us in, in the book of John and First John, and I hope it has been that for you as it's been for me as we've studied this. So I want us to take just a minute of, of reflection. Uh, Crystal, could, would you mind playing a song? We're just going to take just a minute of reflection, and maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like, Man, Daniel, you named two or three of my idols. Again, like I said, the Lord Jesus, he beckons us, come. Come, and to, all me, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So just uh, take a minute, reflect upon God's word, do whatever, respond in whatever way the Lord's prompting you to do so.